Hello, I'm Jason Dick at CQ Roll Call. And I'm David Hawkins at CQ Roll Call, and this is the Big Story Podcast. Today we're talking with Simone Pathé, Roll Call's senior political reporter, about some of the stuff that's happening with the inauguration, particularly the way Democrats are starting to flee the scene or just saying that they're not going to show up at all. Simone, we, uh, we started following this over the weekend after the president-elect Donald Trump I got into a bit of a Twitter war with Representative John Lewis, a Democrat from Georgia and one of the icons of the civil rights era. And it seems like we've seen a steady stream of Democrats using this as as their sort of like this is the final straw for them. They're saying they don't want to come to the inauguration specifically because of this, but they're also adding on a bunch of grievances that they've seen from the past. Indeed. It's important to note that even before the Lewis debacle, there was maybe about five Democratic members of the House who had decided independently last week that they were not going to attend. Um, That included Luis Gutierrez, Kathleen Clark, and others. Now we're up to about 61 members. (laughs) That's 30 percent of the Democratic caucus who say that they will not attend on Friday for various reasons. But you're right. Lewis is mostly the impetus for a lot of these folks coming out of the gate here. And David, this is fairly rare. We see every once in a while there's a scattered member here or there who says that they're not going to attend because, you know, they have a, I don't know, a bar mitzvah or something to go to. But uh, this is, we haven't seen anything like this, uh, at least in recent memory, have we? So one always needs to be cautious about saying the word unprecedented, but I'm pretty confident this is unprecedented. Uh, I've done some research um, and I cannot find any uh, evidence of an organized boycott of an inauguration like this one. And, and the number that Simone just mentioned is, is astonishing. We're now talking about one out of every three House Democrats. Uh, it is interesting to me uh, that no Senate Democrats have decided to go along with this, and I, I'm not sure I have an answer for why that is. Um, but still, uh, there will be, in theory, empty seats on the, in the, the arguably uh, the most sought-after seats in America. Uh, are the podium seats at an inauguration, and and probably they'll find people to fill those seats. They'll they'll allow some spouses to come, or or they'll have some pages to fill those seats. But you know, alarming and remarkable, and just another uh, sign that uh, President Trump's uh, words about brief words about uniting the nation on the night he declared victory uh, have not been followed by other words, uh, similar words, and that with every passing day he seems to find a way to pick a more provocative fight than the day before. Simone, what are some of the things that members are saying? I mean, we've we've seen almost some creative, uh, you know, anecdotes given or creative reasons. Uh, You know, uh, Tony Carneris in California, he he said something, he quoted his parents as saying, you know, who you hang out with Mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, tell me who you hang out with and I'll tell you who you are. What are some of the other things that you've seen Democrats cite? Because they've taken this opportunity to uh, increase the the rhetoric quotient, uh, if, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the most interesting members, um, California's Jerry McNerney, he had announced that he was going to skip the inauguration because of a scheduling conflict over the weekend. Last night, he put out a brand new statement saying that actually Trump's election lacked legitimacy. Okay. <laughs> so you see here that Democrats are, are really getting on the bandwagon here, boosting their rhetoric, as you said, about Lewis, but also about Russia. Um, they're really going back to a lot of concerns that the party has had. It's important to note that a lot of these Democrats are from very reliably Democratic 
safe blue districts. Um, a couple of blue dog Democrats in there as well. Kurt Schrader, Dan Lipinski, Carol Shea Porter of New Hampshire is the only one from a district that Donald Trump won. Of course, she's known for, for going her own way and doing her own thing. So that's not terribly surprising. But we haven't seen any from any really competitive districts yet. That'll be interesting. One other thing that I think we should just pause to note is that a disproportionate number of these lawmakers are lawmakers of color. They're black and Latino lawmakers. And what that will mean uh, is that the the tableau, the TV tableau that we see on Friday will look even less like America uh, than the Trump cabinet. I mean, it is going to be uh, a very, very white set of, uh, of faces that we see in the middle distance behind the new president and the new vice president. The one, the, and the one exception, uh, the most, the most prominent exception, uh, will be uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, who it appears has been has been uh, invited by Vice President-elect Pence to administer that oath. But other than Clarence Thomas, uh, usually you would see in the inauguration you'd see a, a vision of Congress that kind of looks like Congress, which is which does not reflect the American population, but at least it's somewhat black and brown. It seemed like that the tiff with Lewis that Trump had where Lewis said that he was going to skip it because citing this issue of legitimacy that he didn't view him as legitimate president, it set off the the floodgates, if you will. Uh, This, this, though, is not the first time that John Lewis has skipped an inauguration, though, is it, Simone? It's not. He had to backtrack yesterday and admit that actually he had skipped one before um, George Bush's inauguration. I don't think that really takes away from the the whole movement here. At this point, it's moved beyond him. Once we've seen the numbers that we have, you know, more upwards of 60 Democrats here, it's moved beyond Lewis himself. Of course, Republicans will use that incident to discredit him and try to delegitimize the movement. So a little embarrassing for him, but I don't think it takes away from, from what Democrats are trying to do. David, do you think that this is something that we're going to just see more of in future inaugurations, that that the po- political parties will use the, you know, any sort of pomp and circumstance and, and, and say, like, I'm not going to give credence to this president or this, you know, head of state or, or whomever and, and just say, like, we're going to do, we're going to conduct a mass boycott? Well, from the from the perspective of the other side, if you were if you were if you were th- trying to see things from the Trump side's perspective, you'd say, yes, this is taking polarized partisanship to an extreme degree, that this is an occasion of state, this is a, a, a ritual of democracy that should be above partisanship, and that they should just, you know, sort of suck it up and be there. It's interesting, and I, I don't know, there was one uh, member, uh, Gregory Meeks from New York, who at one point said uh, that he was on the bubble about going or not, I don't know what he decided to do, but he did make the point that if I go, it's because I think, in contrast to staying away, members who oppose the president should be there to, quote, get in his face uh, in a respectful way. Uh, So it will be interesting to see what happens when President Trump first gives his first speech to Congress. New presidents don't give State of the Union speeches, as the three of us understand. It's by tradition. The new president doesn't know enough about the State of the Union to give a State of the Union, but he usually does come to Congress after he's been in office a few weeks to lay out his legislative program. So after the inauguration, that will be the next one to watch to see if this similar sort of partisan instead of just showing up and not clapping, why the Democrats don't show up at all. It seemed, Simone, that like some of the, you know, one of the reasons this seemed to wound or give the impetus for a lot of Democrats was that the argument with Lewis came on Martin Luther King weekend. Mm-hmm. And and it was just this, I mean, the, the, the idea that a, pr- a president who had done a lot of, you know, 
a lot of a lot of arguing uh, with with particularly with minorities uh, who, who had you know sort of used those campaign wedges during the you know this very long presidential election that still feels like it's going on in some ways uh, that that they said that this is just a bridge too far. Is that is that kind of what you what you saw? Yeah, I think the timing was seen as particularly insensitive. Of course, the the specific criticisms of Congressman Lewis also were viewed as insensitive. You know, saying that he was all talk, talk, talk for a man that was beaten on Bloody Sunday was particularly egregious. I think, um, and some of the the criticisms of him were actually factually inaccurate. The fact that his district was failing. Um, this is a man who won 85% of the vote in November, the highest total of any member of the congressional delegation from Georgia, clearly well-respected in his district. So the, the disregard, as we've seen multiple times from Trump for facts, really, I think was was part of the, the outrage here. Right. He even described the district wrong. Yes, it includes right. uh, center city Atlanta, but it is, it is far from an economically failing place. It Very includes uh, Buckhead, which is one of the most affluent suburbs. I believe Georgia Tech is in mm-hmm. the district. I mean, there's there's a lot going on in Mr. Lewis's district. It is not, as Trump described, sort of this hollowed out burning shell of urban decay. That just isn't right. Which also to me seems – I mean, it, the way that, that urban America – Trump has described urban America seems to be a very – dated reference. I mean, he describes it almost like as if the 1968 riots are still raging right now and, and the National Guard's being called in and and there's this strife that seemed to – it's a depiction of the late 60s or mid-60s to, to early 70s. Not it, it doesn't really have a lot to – of reality to bear with, uh, you know, the downtowns that we see where <laughs> we have trouble getting parking, we can't <laughs> get a reservation in some of the restaurants, uh, and the, you know, some of the loft residential areas are, are you know, outpricing any, any, even the priciest cities in the world, like London or Hong Kong. Right. I think it's, it's a good point. I think, I mean, one thing worth noting is that Mr. Trump, while he's very familiar with Manhattan, he has not spent a whole lot of time, I don't believe, certainly during the campaign, he didn't spend a lot of time campaigning in big urban centers. So I'm not sure uh, that from his own personal experience, which, as, as we know, a lot of what Mr. Trump says seems to spring from his own life experience or what he remembers of his own life experience, hasn't included a lot of visits to uh, inner cities, many of which are are thriving, as you describe, and only a few of which or some of which uh, are still struggling. Simone, what are you going to be looking for in in the time between now and the you know in the inauguration and after the inauguration? Yeah, well, I'm going to be tracking the numbers to see how many more Democrats come out. The timing of this is really interesting. Um, I would mention that unlike some other publications that are tracking this, I made a particular effort here to list the members in the order in which they come out, not alphabetically, um, so that you can see you know who's jumping on the bandwagon late, who was one of the original folks to make a stand here. Um, and of course, we'll be looking to see if any Democrats from more competitive districts join the cause. Are there any congressional leaders that we've seen so far, anybody in the, in the echelons of leadership who have said that they're not coming? No, not so far. Okay. Uh, Cedric Richmond, the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, was also on the bubble. What, did he, what has he decided to do? I have not heard that he is not attending. So, yeah. so far he's there. It, it seems like that, that we've, it's, we've almost taken in all of the rank and file. And so now mm-hmm. you know, it, it's going to start getting very interesting as people may, you know, weigh these decisions of whether to follow protocol you know, or and or or as you as you said, use <laughs> we're getting into unprecedented territory if we see some congressional leaders start to bow out too. Right, none none yet. So the the most prominent um, African American person in the leadership is Jim Jim Clyburn uh, from South Carolina. 
uh, if should he decide to not attend, that would be that would take it to a new level. We're also looking at. Um, Confirmations, you know, that, that we I mean, we typically see a lot of confirmations that happen, you know, at the at the end of the inauguration day, and right now we still, you know, we're still like it seems like they're arguing a little bit on you know on the bubble on on just how many we'll get through. Um, I mean, usually we see a few of these people get through on inauguration day, right, David? I think uh, when President Obama took office eight years ago. Uh, there were seven, I believe, that were confirmed on Inauguration Day. Technically, uh, one, of the, one of the ceremonies of the day is that right after the uh, president is sworn in, since technically the, the, uh, Mr. Trump cannot actually nominate these people until, until they're sworn in and are actually the president, he goes to a room right off the Senate chamber, as, as I think you've probably witnessed the this. The president's room. The president's room, it's called, and signs the, the warrants or the commissions, the nominating papers. Uh, and then usually uh, the Senate has teed up uh, several of the, the least controversial ones to be confirmed that day. Mr. McConnell, the, M- Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, has talked about trying to do seven on uh, on Friday. It does not appear that there are going to be seven that will be through their hearings and will be sort of through all the all the sluice gates that need to happen. Right, the agreement with the Office of Government Ethics, all of their, you know, any kind of paperwork that they need to fill out, it seems like that there, there's been a little bit of a lag. So we do know that the Senate will be in at 4 o'clock on Friday to do that, uh, you know, whatever nominees are ready, they will be ready to confirm. It looks like that they will have somewhere around a handful. But, uh, you know, again, it does seem like there's a lag between this and, and previous administrations coming in. Uh, yes, and, and this is all the more interesting because um, this is the first new administration that's taken office since the partial so-called nuclear option took away the filibuster on nominees. So to, to remind, uh, it takes a simple majority to confirm a cabinet secretary now. There is no ability for, for opponents of that cabinet secretary to try and filibuster him or her. You would think that since the Democrats only have 48 votes at their disposal and the Republicans 52, that this would be relatively straightforward math. Uh, so each day that goes by without these cabinet secretaries uh, being confirmed is uh, an indication uh, that by part of that unified Republican government in Washington is not the uh, is not the greased pig that you might think it would be. Simone, as a political reporter, if you could follow, you know, just one or two members during the inauguration th- through the ceremony and so forth, who would you choose to zero in on? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, probably someone from leadership, just mm-hmm. to understand how they are going to interact, what kind of signals they are going to give to their caucus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether they, as we've said so far, all members of Democratic leadership in the House have promised to attend. But what sort of signals will they give to their caucus in terms of applauding and, and showing respect? And will be interesting to see. All right. That's about going to wrap us up for the big story. Thank you, Simone Pathay. David Hawkins. I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again.